Our scripture reading this evening comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. I will be reading from the King James Version. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I haven't used Philippians 3, 13, and 14 as my text since last Sunday night. I do not like to think of it as repetition. I like to think of it as consistency. But I do think that uh, I could probably preach a series of lessons on this particular text and never repeat myself. Okay, Cecil could. I I couldn't. But uh, there are a number of different windows of illustration through which we might look at this passage. And so I want to take a different vantage point tonight in light of the importance of making right choices in our lives. I've often said from this very pulpit that life is, in fact, a series of choices. And when you begin to think about that in a very practical way and also considering the minutia in which uh, that is involved in, in all the decisions that you have to make every day, that certainly is true. You wake up in the morning and you decide, am I going to get up or not? Am I get up and go to work? Do I go to school? Do I do this or do I do that? You decide what you want to have for breakfast or if you want to have breakfast at all and on and on through the day. You continue to make a series of choices. Some of those choices are just of minimal importance, like, you know, whether you choose this cereal or that to eat for breakfast. Other decisions that you make are going to be life-changing. They are going to determine your eternal destiny. And I often say to someone fresh out of the baptistry, especially if they're a young person and they're still looking at the fuller span of life, that no matter what I say to that person, no matter what decisions that you make from this day forward, and I'm talking about all the big decisions about whether you get married and who you get married to and what kind of job that you, you pursue through the rest of your life, all of those decisions pale in comparison to the decision that you just made to follow Jesus Christ. And I've never had anyone want to argue that point. I believe all of us who are believers certainly agree that that's the most important decision that we will ever make. But in light of a lesson that I preached here just a little over a month ago about little by little, we also appreciate the fact that surprisingly, even the smaller decisions, the choices that we make are oftentimes life-changing, even though we don't realize at the moment that that's going to be a life-changing decision. But it's the little decisions that we make every day. The, 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 the choice that we make of the kind of language we use, for example, or the decisions that we make that then render the influence and the example that we have on both those who are believers and those who are not believers, those kinds of things really are in a cumulative, collective sort of way, uh, almost as important as, as what we would think of as the major decisions in our lives. Remember hearing the story about a young man that went in and uh, talked to one of his close Christian friends, and he said, I'll just tell you, I don't like the direction that my Christian life, or I've been taking in my Christian life. And, and his friend asked the obvious question, well, in what direction do you think you're going? And he said, I'm standing still. I'm not making any progress at all. And then he, then he thought about that comment for just a moment. He goes, no, I, I need to correct that. I'm not standing still. I'm going backward. 
And maybe there are times in your life when you feel like that, that I'm not making any real spiritual progress in my life. I'm not growing closer to the Lord. I'm not more dedicated or committed than I was this time last week, last month, last year. And so we we have to ask ourselves, am I going in the right direction? I want us to think about that together for just a few minutes tonight. The thing is that the Bible, and I, I can't point to any particular verse that says this verbatim, but we all understand The Bible says that God allows us to choose the direction of our lives. So that's up to us. If we are going forward, if we are growing and making progress on a daily basis, or we aren't, then we have only one place to look, and that's in the mirror. Because each of us is given that that choice, that freedom to move forward, to move backward, or just to sit where we are and stay in neutral. And yet the Bible teaches also implicitly, at least in principle, that forward is the only way that we'll ever find satisfaction. That's the only way that we will ever attain to any level of excitement and and zeal and enthusiasm in our Christian life. It, It gives us the purpose that we need to live our lives on a daily basis. And most important, it will result in spiritual fruitfulness for us. That kind of fruit that the Bible does talk about in detail and tells us that that fruit is what we need to be pursuing and developing and cultivating in our lives. So that man's realization, that the man that met with his friend that day about the direction in which his life was heading, proved to be a pivotal point in his life. Because he, like the rest of us, needed to stop at that juncture in his life to do some, what James Dobson has called, some contemplative reassessment to see whether or not what he's doing and where he's going in his life is worth the purpose that God put him here for. And and I think we all need to ask ourselves that question. And it can also represent a pivotal, life-changing moment in our lives if only we will look at it the right way. And so today, having reversed his direction, his life is now full of spiritual fruit. And he is satisfied, and he is happy, and he does find peace and purpose in his life for now. Now let me ask a question. Where are you headed in your spiritual life? It wouldn't do a whole lot of good for me to stand up here and talk about someone in the third person, and all of us think, okay, I wonder how he's doing now. We need to ask that same question of ourselves. God made sure that we have the ability to shift forward into neutral or in reverse when he instilled in us the freedom of choice. We often call that free will. Every one of us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, has free will. We get to make the decisions. In fact, sometimes we don't want to acknowledge that because of the reality that we have abused the free will that God has given us, just like the first couple did in the Garden of Eden. So our challenge is to move in that direction that will bring to our lives that satisfaction and excitement and purpose and fruitfulness that we were talking about just a moment ago. Now let's look at Scripture for a moment. The writer of Hebrews often refers to the Christian life as a Christian race. There are a few allusions that are sprinkled throughout that book that refer to our, our, our relationship to God, our Christian life as, as a race. For example, no, no place perhaps more clearly does it say that than in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Let us run with patience. Some versions say with endurance, the race that is set before us. And so not only is the parallel there between the Christian life and running a race, but one of the paramount qualifiers... One of the necessary requisites in finishing that race is endurance. 
perseverance, sticking with it. That's maybe not so much the case if we were thinking about a 100-yard dash, but it sure is if we're thinking about 26.2 miles and running a marathon or some of the folks that uh, like to run ultra marathon. Let me inject this very quickly. There was a young man that I grew to appreciate and love very much over in Atlanta when I was preaching there for 15 years. He's now an elder in the church where I preached, at the congregation where I preached. For his 50th birthday, he ran 50 miles. I had to take a nap just hearing about it. I mean, there are folks that can actually do that. Uh, it, it, it took him a while, and it, it really depleted his physical resources. But again, there are folks that even run 100 miles at a time. But, but, but anyway, the Hebrews writer is, is talking about the level of, of endurance, patience, perseverance that's necessary then to run the Christian race. People running in a race, they run forward toward the line. I know that much about running in races. I've never seen a race. I've never been a participant in a race in which the participants ran backwards or sideways. Because that would be counterproductive to either winning the race or even finishing the race. Full steam ahead has to be the cry of those who make a real difference in our world. So spiritual progress allows Christians to move to, to greater achievement, to higher levels than we have ever experienced before. And at the same time, it will, watch this carefully, qualify us for greater blessings. So we're not just talking about how much can we, be, can we bear, how much can we endure. We're also talking about a tremendous spiritual payoff in our lives. God will bless us if we make it our commitment to move forward in the right direction. 1 John 1 verse 7. If, if we can walk in the light as he is in the light, we continue to have fellowship one with the other, and the blood of Jesus washes our sins away. We've talked about that passage, I think, within the last two weeks. And that the language there in the original is continuous action, that is, the blood of Jesus continues to wash our sins away as we continue to walk in the light. I was in a Bible class one time where someone made this comment about that passage. The passage is talking about not perfection, because none of us will ever achieve spiritual perfection and always make the right decisions. I mean, every, every decision that we make all day long for the rest of our lives is always going to be the right decision. Well, you wish. We will not be able to do that. And so the person said, it's not talking about perfection, it's talking about direction. And I thought, that's exactly right. I mean, that encapsulates 1 John 1, verse 7, I think, in a very powerful and beautiful way. So tonight, we're not talking about living your lives perfectly. I'm talking about making sure that we're headed in the right direction. Even when there are setbacks, even when we make the wrong choices... And, and, and then we acknowledge that, or even if we're not aware of it, I, I believe if we continue to walk in the light, Jesus' blood continues to wash our sins away, even those sins that we're not aware of. Let me, let me illustrate this a number of different ways. First of all, the Old Testament illustrates the importance of this kind of spiritual direction. The children of Israel were at first reluctant to follow Moses out of the land of Egypt. And that sounds really strange to us, because we know how long that they had been in bondage in Egypt. And how long, by the way, they had been crying out for a deliverer. So Moses comes along, the man chosen by God, to deliver those people out of Egyptian bondage, and they're reluctant to follow him. 
I think that tells you something about the dynamic between followership and leadership in most organizations, and that was certainly the case with the Israelites. However, God gave Moses some signs that that he might use to specifically convince Pharaoh that he needed to let the Israelite people go. Well, apparently those signs that Moses performed were, were witnessed by the Israelite people too because all of a sudden... They're convinced, hey, maybe this is the guy that we need to follow. And so that must have impressed them too. They agreed to follow Moses. Everything seemed fine until the Pharaoh's army moved in on them from the rear as they were escaping from from Egypt and they were at the edge of the Red Sea. You remember that, that scenario. Well, the Israelites began to grumble and murmur. And I stop here to remind you that murmur is the Hebrew word for bellyache. That's, that's what they were doing. And they said to Moses, this, this is Exodus 14, 11, and 12, if you want to follow along. Moses, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And yes, this is the same group of people who said, Lord, please send us a deliverer to get us out of this place and to get us out of this bondage. And now they're immediately turning on the leadership. All Moses wants is the best for his people. And he's willing to lead them out at his own, at own personal sacrifice, no matter what it takes. And they're now bellyaching already. Look, why didn't you just leave us there to die in Egypt? We at least would have been buried in a familiar graveyard. You know, we could have been buried around our family. And you're bringing us out in the desert to die. They wanted Moses to know that they were, I think among other things, that they were laborers and not soldiers. They recognized their limitations. They knew that uh, a battle with a large, well-trained Egyptian army would not end well. So Moses did the right thing. The Bible says he went to God for help. God responded to Moses with some pretty crystal clear instructions. This is Exodus 14, 15, if you want to check it. Why are you crying out to me, God said? Tell the Israelites to move on. One version of that passage reads like this. Tell the Israelites to move forward. Well, how could they? Don't you think that was the first question in their mind? Here they are on the edge of the Red Sea. I mean, they're smack up against it. And the only place to go if they're going forward is into the sea. So it's in front of them. And God then told Moses, here's the remedy to that problem. You raise your staff, you stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I imagine in all of their committee meetings, no one ever imagined that scenario. So God said, we'll take care of that. They'll go across on dry land. Moses convinced the people, of course, to follow God's instructions. You know the account as well as I do. God miraculously saved them, and in the process, he destroyed Pharaoh's mighty army. The lesson for them, and I think the lesson for us ought to be clear. God instructed them to go forward. They obeyed, and in the act of that obedience, God removed the obstacle. Please don't miss that, church. When we do what God tells us to do, God will take care of the obstacles. He'll take care of whatever is in front of us so that when we use our free will to make the right decision, to follow God, to follow his instructions, I'm convinced that God will always equip us then to be able to take that journey even farther. I believe it was Marshall Keeble that was credited with the uh, 
with the observation that here is his definition of true faith. If God commands him to jump through a brick wall, Brother Keeble says, it's my responsibility to jump, and it's God's responsibility to make a hole. And that pretty much is what the Israelites are up against as well. So the Old Testament illustrates the importance of moving forward spiritually, but also the New Testament teaches it on virtually every page. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter wrote, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Undeveloped skills, that's what limits a baby's ability to perform. It's because they don't have the the hard drive up here or the experience of being able to do the things that someone who is more mature is able to do, like walk and talk and all the other skills that we learn as we walk through life. So those words, I think, remind us that Peter spoke about uh, the fact that in reality, when we first start out, we're all spiritual babies. And it reminds us that we come into the Lord's body with some growing to do as spiritual babies, and we too have some undeveloped skills that will hinder and hamper our effectiveness for the Lord. So what we need to do is determine that as we're going in the right direction, that we're going to continue to grow, and we're going to continue to mature, and we're going to continue to equip and be equipped for greater service in the kingdom of Christ. You think about the, the, the human side, the, the earthly side of Peter's analogy. And we know that parents take care of their newborn babies because babies, again, cannot fulfill their own basic needs. I don't think I've ever heard, a, I know I haven't heard a parent ever suggest to a newborn baby, listen, if you need a, a dry diaper, they are in the top drawer of the changing table. Now, you're going to have to, some of you need to write this down. You're going to have to take care of that basic need for that child. They're not mature enough to be able to do that. We don't expect a baby to prepare meals. We do not expect them to drive themselves to a doctor's appointment and all the rest. And yet, as, as that infant grows to adolescence and then to adulthood, he's, he's going to begin to gradually, incrementally assume full responsibility for his life at least ideally. Others of you need to be writing that down if you're still living in your parents' basement. That's another sermon. But we're going to grow, and we're going to learn some of those basic skills. We're going to be able to do more independently for ourselves what others have done for us in times past. And Peter is just saying that in a similar way, a newborn spiritual baby is dependent upon more mature members of God's family. Isn't that right? I mean, when a person is fresh out of the baptistry, they're a brand-new Christian, And they don't know how to be able to take care of themselves and feed themselves and do all of those things that a baby needs to learn when going through life. And yet with some growth and with some nurturing, they gain new strength, they become less dependent on other Christians, and they become more capable of an independent, productive Christian life. Now they're not always ever going to be completely independent. That's why God put us in church. I understand that. But the older we get, the more... Ideally, the more mature we get spiritually, the more we're going to be able to handle things for ourselves, and and certainly in terms of making the right choices, as we're talking about tonight. Turn to to 1 Corinthians 3 for a moment. I want to identify how very clearly the Bible, the New Testament, teaches this principle, because Paul was writing to the Corinthian Christians, and and I don't want to be disrespectful any time I talk about Scripture, but let me just say the Corinthians... They were a messed up church. 
I mean, really, as you, as you walk through this book, of course, you know that Paul is just addressing one problem after another. And, and, and he really, I think, gets to the heart of the issue in chapter 3 in the first few verses. I want to read verses 1 through 4, and you follow along. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk. And not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. For you are still carnal. Another word that might substitute there would be worldly. You're still thinking in worldly terms and fleshly. For, for where there are envy, strife, and division. So if you want to know what are the symptoms of, of carnal thinking among God's people, here are three of them. Envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Isn't it obvious that that's the central problem? For one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not, are you not carnal? So then verse 4, he gives a very classic illustration of the divisions and the strife and the envy that was extant among that congregation. So they're even aligning themselves behind some man. Maybe it was the person who had baptized them into Christ. There was preacheritis in the first century church as well. And so Paul is addressing that. He said, that's just, that's just worldliness. That's just carnal thinking. That's what that is. You know, it's quite natural for immature children to cry and fuss and fight. Now, as parents, obviously, we want to regulate that and, and correct that behavior. But I believe we all understand, especially if you've got a house full of kids, that there's going to be some fussing and fighting that goes along. That's a part of that immaturity. Well, evidently, Paul says that many Christians at Corinth were spiritually immature. They fought among themselves. They refused to deal with such problems as immorality in their midst. In light of chapter 5, they abused the Lord's Supper. They abused their spiritual gifts. And the list just goes on and on. And frankly, the church in, in that city was a mess when Paul wrote his first letter to them. And we might say they were guilty of spiritual stagnation. I'm going to use that word a number of times in the rest of this lesson. But I think that's the central problem among the Corinthian congregations. They were not moving forward. They were not moving in the right direction. They had allowed so much of the world to come through the baptistry with them. And they were still allowing that to determine the choices that they made even when it came to when they gathered to worship. They were making horrendous decisions in terms of what we need to be doing as a part of our worship. So they were guilty of spiritual stagnation. They were, they were stopped dead in their tracks. And the result was that that church was not functioning as God intended it to function. And Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, watch this carefully, primarily as a plea from a bona fide apostle to please grow up. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians really is all about? He's begging them, please just grow up. Overcome that immaturity, go in the, continue to go in the right direction, choose first by God's will what that right direction is, but then make that commitment and determination that you're going to go that way from now on. So they needed to move beyond the place where they had settled in their spiritual development. Let me just say this, growth is natural. Stagnation is unnatural. That's true physically but it is especially true spiritually. Spiritual infancy is something that every one of us can change. If you are not tonight satisfied with your spiritual progress, I'm here to guarantee you, give God's guarantee to you, that you can change that. You do not have to stay where you are right now. Christians don't have to stay babies their whole lives. So by exerting the appropriate amount of effort, 
The Bible teaches in principle that we can be strong in the word. We can grow in our faith on a daily basis. God, God wants the best for his children. He doesn't want us to stay spiritually immature. He wants us to grow. I don't remember who I had this conversation with, and it just now occurred to me, so this is free material. But I was talking to somebody here at church not long ago about raising kids, and uh, they were kind of, you know, raise their eyebrows and go, I sure not looking to their, forward to their teenage years. And I made this observation. I, I think Mia and I are both in agreement that, that we, while there were some challenges that were unique to the teen years of our children, that we enjoyed those years. For one of the reasons was, for the very first time, you can pretty much talk to your own children as equals. I mean, you know, you can carry on an adult conversation w- with your children. And that really is a good place to be. And God is just telling us that that's the way we can be with him. We can carry on an adult conversation with our God for the first time. We, there, are, there are all kinds of blessings and benefits that comes. He wants the best for us. He wants to see us grow. He wants us to see us develop and cultivate our resources and our talents and our abilities so that we will be able to go out into the world and make a, a real difference and be a, be a change maker in, in the world and the community in which we live. He wants us to choose this pattern toward future progress. Third, Paul demonstrated it. Now we're going to go back to Philippians 3 and look at verses 12 through 14 one more time. Now, the passage, uh, Mike read the passage a moment ago, and he did a fine job with it. But I wish that I had asked him to read verse 12 as well. So let's go back and at least pick up on verse 12. Not that I have already attained, Paul begins this pericope. I have not already attained or am already perfected, that is complete, full grown, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for of which... Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So he's writing to the Philippians. This single-minded statement of purpose, I think, reveals three quick vital principles that are necessary to our growing usefulness in the kingdom of Christ. Number one, Paul proclaims that he would not allow anything to distract him from his quest. He wrote in verse 14, notice, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Now clearly Paul was moving forward. Growth was, was a way of life for him. So when he tells other Christians you need to be growing, you need to be making forward progress, he knew exactly what he was talking about. I mean, Paul was the kind of man that refused Satan or the world or his circumstances to distract him from, from his quest, his challenge to be more like Jesus every day of his life. He set his sights heavenward. He refused to stray from the direction in which he was focused. I learned an important lesson years ago when I was a distance runner. As I often say, that was 40 years and 50 pounds ago. But uh, I, I learned a lesson, and that is the runner who is in a race, if you look back or even glance to one side or the other, you are likely, likely to lose some valuable time. To win, you have to focus on the goal, and we have to refuse to be distracted from our forward progress. The second thing I think that we need to note from this text, Paul announced dissatisfaction with the level that he had already attained. He said in verse 12, notice that, not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect. And he also stated in verse 13, I do not consider myself to take in hold of it. That is, I have not arrived spiritually. I am not where I need to be. I am not where I want to be. I think we could all agree that if ever there was a man other than the Lord himself, who could be comfortable with where he was spiritually, it would have to be the Apostle Paul. 
And yet here he is writing this very personal letter to the Philippian congregation saying, I am not where I want to be, and I am not where God sees that I have the potential to be. He was a giant in the first century church. His influence for the Lord was widely felt. He no doubt led hundreds, maybe even thousands to the Lord. He sacrificed freely for the cause of Christ, but he refused to be satisfied with his personal spiritual progress. You know, the problem with becoming satisfied in our Christian lives is the tendency to stop on that plateau where we are, where we're comfortable, when the Lord has so much waiting for, more waiting for us out there in the future. One preacher, and, and I don't know how long ago I heard this, but it stuck with me for decades now. One preacher reminds us that when we are green, we continue to grow, but when we get ripe, we start to rot. So our quest is to make sure that we're always green and always growing. We trust the doctor who is never satisfied with his or her medical knowledge. The best educators out there are the people who are never satisfied with the level of knowledge that they have at the current moment. They don't get their diploma, walk across the stage, and become teachers in an academic field without having to continue to learn as they grow. If they, if they just stop in their education the moment they got their diploma, no matter what that degree might be, I, I don't want to sit at their feet, neither do you. They want to continue to grow in their knowledge of that field. It's, it's growing people who are the most useful to their fellow man, and it's growing Christians who are going to be the most useful to God and to his church. And then the final lesson that I want to draw from the Philippians 3 passage, Paul also made it very clear that he would not be slowed down by the failures that he had experienced in the past. One of the probably most noted parts of verse 13 is where he says, forgetting, forgetting what lies behind. It's pretty obvious to me that Paul didn't dwell a whole lot on past victories because otherwise he would have become satisfied and complacent. But another key to his spiritual growth, and I don't think we can miss this, we, we must factor this in in terms of our own spiritual evaluation. Just as important as that, he did not dwell on his past defeats. That would have discouraged him. So you, you see the balance the wonderful scriptural balance here. We're not satisfied with where we are or we'll get, we'll get complacent. But by the same token, we don't spend a whole lot of time wallowing in the history and the memory of past mistakes or else that will discourage us. Paul undoubtedly had some failures. You can read about that in Romans chapter 7 and some other places. But he refused to be discouraged. He refused to be sidetracked by those failures. It needs to be remembered though. That failure can be a good teacher. Someone has said that failure is actually the springboard to success. So many of the greatest successes in history have come only after a large number of failures. It's advisable to remember that failure and, and, and to remember specific failures, but only as a reference point for future attempts. By that I mean use those failures and the memory of them as building blocks so that you know what won't work and you can spend the rest of your time now making sure that you're doing what does work. And surely the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Paul demonstrate that God's way is always forward. And finally, the first church practiced it. In Acts 2.41, Luke tells us that the Lord added to the church on the very first day of his existence 3,000, perhaps more than 3,000 people. Verse 42 provides a report on the action of those people after they became a part of the body of Christ. 
And the Bible says they devoted themselves, watch this carefully, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That verse, I think, reveals for us a four-part formula of the early church that empowered its members to, to, to move forward, starting right there on the birthday of the church, to move forward in their spiritual progress. Bible study plus fellowship plus evangelism plus worship and prayer equals spiritual progress. It did on the day of Pentecost. It does still today. We continue to see that evidence of their growth throughout verses 43 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. Those first century Christians took care of the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were united. They worshiped God faithfully. They were glad and sincere. Their motives were pure in their spiritual development. And the Lord was adding to the church daily. Something special was happening in the lives of those people. They were not the same people that they had been when they first heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. In fact, if you do a survey of the book of Acts, I think it will reveal that those early Christians did not plateau. That is, they did not peak in their growth or in their enthusiasm for the Lord. The church, the Bible says, throughout Acts continued to prosper and to grow exponentially. And multitudes enlisted their lives to the cause of Christ as a result of the influence and the work of that early church. They, the Bible says they zealously took the gospel with them even when they were scattered by persecution, Acts 8 verse 4. And so they became a people who were really on fire for the Lord. You know what we want? You know, we want to go in the right direction. We want to be growing spiritually, but we want to be on fire for the Lord. It's one thing to, to say, I'm, I pat myself on the back for being going in the right direction. It's another thing to recognize the enthusiasm and the level of zeal that we ought to be reflecting in our lives. So I end with one question. What's your motivation? Several years ago, W.A. Griswell said, with the present trend, by the year 2000, less than 2% of the human population will be identified with evangelical Christianity. Now, fortunately, he was incorrect, but not by much. And his prediction, I think, served, for some believers at least, as a sobering wake-up call for those of us who love the Lord. We live in the United States. I think you've noticed that. And someone has predicted within the last 30 years that if trends continue and we do not carry the gospel to those around us in friendship evangelism, relational evangelism, whatever you want to call it, if we don't, if we don't get the message out, within 50 years, the United States will be a field of evangelism rather than a force for evangelism. That is, there will be countries that will be sending missionaries to our United States to evangelize us. I don't say that to discourage anyone, but I do hope that it is, in fact, a wake-up call. That we need to be moving forward, not only individually, but collectively. It's certainly true that those who identify with an organized church, their numbers are shrinking. So we ask ourselves, how can that trend be reversed? The good news is we can turn things around through personal growth and our relationship to the Lord. Let me summarize everything that I could say from this point forward with this bold statement. The way the church grows is to make sure that the church itself is strong. Does that make sense? If we have spiritual health and we are individually growing in the direction that God would have us to go, and it's not going to be near as difficult for us to share that kind of faith with those around us. And I believe the church will, will grow hand over fist in a way that would amaze each of us. 
I distinctly remember some years ago a young man came to visit me in my office wanting to talk to me. And with his head hanging low, he said to me, I, I'm not satisfied with my meager attempts at service to the Lord. I want to do better and I want to do more. What can I do? And I thought then, and I still think today, what a great question that is. If every Christian would ask that same question, what can I do? What can I do more? How can I grow in my faith? It's people like that young man who will make a difference. People who choose to go forward and not backward, not sideways, not sit in neutral. Remember, even those who are on the right track will get run over if you just sit there. When looking at suits in the department store one day, I spotted a suit that was, in my limited stylistic uh, perception, was a beautiful suit. And I decided that's the one that I want. The size was just right. I looked at the tag. I decided that is not the suit that I want. (laughs) And I quickly rationalized that that suit was not near as nice as I thought it was at first blush. That there was a suit on an adjacent rack that was $100 less that was much more to my liking. Now the truth is it was the cost that scared me away. I think too many of us in the church today focus on the cost of following Jesus until we come to the point where we rationalize, you know, that's not what I wanted to do in the first place. And make no mistake, there is indeed a cost involved in pressing forward spiritually as Paul had done. But I'm just begging us tonight, let's not be frightened away by the cost. The end result justifies a thousand times over the cost of getting there. That was Paul's assessment, you may remember, in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 417, that the sufferings that we experience in this life, he said, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Think about that day, folks. The Lord's coming back. And every one of us will stand and be judged like the rest of the world. We'll be judged before a righteous and a good judge. And what we sacrifice, the price that we pay for our faith in this life, Paul assures us is not even worthy to be compared with what we will experience in that life. Think about the payoff. This world is not my home. How beautiful heaven must be. And if you want to go there, this book tells us how to get from earth to heaven. You turn your back on sin and sense of repentance, confess Jesus as God's son, and baptize to have his blood wash all of your sins away. If you're a child of God tonight, and you know that the direction of your life spiritually is not where it needs to be, I hope that you will change course. I've got a book in my library that's fittingly entitled, You Can't Fly to Heaven in a Straight Line. And that's right. There's always course adjustments that we have to make. So tonight, if you need to make a course adjustment in your spiritual life, I hope you'll do that. If you need to settle it in the pew, settle it in the pew. If you need to ask for our prayers, come now while we stand, while we sing.